Welcome to the Flight Safety Detectives. Hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation safety experts, talk all things related to aviation and aerospace. This podcast and the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel are brought to you by the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance and your one-stop for all general aviation insurance needs. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Tell them you're a listener of the show and receive a 5% discount. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up for the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Well, hello, gentlemen. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Um, I've just gotten back again from uh, another whirlwind trip, Arizona, California, places west. And of course, you know, I'm, uh, I'm constantly doing the work. Um, it's, it's tough out there because these accidents that I'm working when I'm traveling, I, I mean, you just shake your head at. But I did have some fun. Was able to, uh, to do some aviating in a Cirrus SR-22T. And uh, I'll be talking about that and uh, some of the uh, the things that I learned flying that airplane, and of course talking about training as it regards these technically advanced aircraft. But uh, I was uh, I was uh, pleasantly surprised. But um, it it did incorporate my flying with uh, a lot of the workload issues that we've talked about uh, with previous accidents. So where do we find you today, John? I'm back down south today, but I was off traveling myself yesterday to the frozen north. And, uh, you know, I was on my way to Chicago, which I certainly changed that routing. I was going to say, what, what, what were you drinking down in Miami that you left that place to go to Chicago? I think I had too many mojitos. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And I, I was so nice and comfortable figuring I'll get my, my trip in a quickie day and a half, two days and get it over with. Well, that wasn't quite the way it unfolded, but I'm back in Florida now. So I'm happy. Yeah. You got to, uh, you got to get back to those mojitos. You know, you got to get that blood flowing again, because it probably turned to tar up in Chicago. Actually, I found a new drink down here at a local place on the beach. And it's, uh, it's similar to mojito, but it's made with vodka instead of Uh. uh, rum. And they call it a, a Z-Hito, Z-I-Hito. And uh, I had one that led to another that uh, uh, they're good. It, it's obvious that this show has deteriorated. <laughs> and the fact is, is that we are going to start having special segments of the flight safety detectives mixology. So Here we go. <laughs> and we'll From talk the about beach. New, new From the beach. We travel around. Great. And Todd, where are we finding you today? Well, in beautiful uh, Boston, where we have ice and snow, slush, and freezing things, and all, all together nasty stuff to scrape off the driveway. That's eh, just to humble you. <laughs> Makes you appreciate warmer temperatures. Any place is warmer at this point. <laughs> well, good. Well, I'm glad everybody is staying safe. And uh, I'll tell you, with travel right now, and and of course the uh, the variants, and now. 
of course, a lot of the states, my state included here in Colorado, um, they're dropping the, uh, the mask mandates, that is, they're letting them expire. But John, you and I had participated in, uh, in a conference recently, a symposium that we, uh, we attend every year. And uh, one of the topics of discussion, of course, is passenger unruliness. And we've had multiple shows on that. And um, a lot of it is attributed to the mask mandate, which it feels to me like that mask mandate is going to be extended well beyond March. I think you're right. You know, on the flights that I took over the last few days, uh, the flight attendants were very forceful in telling people about the mask. And uh, they came on the PA system. Uh, I didn't count, but at least three times during the flight, uh, reminding people of the mask. So people in the back were being a little careless with their mask, but they were very forceful. Yeah. Uh, so which is good. I mean, uh, we talk about a lot of aviation and, and, and stupidity in aviation. Well, the stupidity in the passengers sometimes just uh, defies description. Oh, I just I do not understand why these people just think that they are above and beyond the law when it comes to this is a federal mandate. This isn't the airline just pushing it on people. This is a federal mandate. And uh, one of the discussion points in this symposium was holding these people accountable. But how do we discourage others from doing it? Of course, you know, they do levy fines, but should they be publicly shamed by name so that it's obvious that you create a situation where there's an air turn back or the pilots have to divert because you aren't going to abide by the law? Should you not only pay for all of the cost incurred in that divert or turn back? And two, should you be publicly identified to the media that it was you that caused all of this? Would that be more of a deterrent if people knew that if you put yourself or the the rest of the the folks on that airplane in a position um, because of your stupidity, then you should be called out for it. We call out we call out airlines, we call out manufacturers when the FAA levies fines against them. Why not do that with individuals? And you know what? This is not a privacy issue. If they're going to create a public spectacle for themselves on an airplane, it's in the public. So let's publicly shame them. Uh, in fact, you know, we talk about uh, the violations against airmen and they make it into the trade publications and the rest. They're not getting in the newspaper saying that, you know, Harry, who failed to wear his mask in, in flight, and caused a ruckus uh, was just fined a hundred thousand dollars. You don't see that in the in the newspaper or on CNN, where that word would get out to people that maybe would change their behavior. Yeah. It's done invisibly, so people don't even realize the severity of the punishment uh, that is handed out. It's not handed out often enough right now. I don't think. I wish the FAA would be uh, setting an example and being very forceful with all these cases, and maybe they would diminish the, the uh, actual ones because of uh, fear of all the problems that come from it. And One area where I, where I have seen consistent publishing of the people's names have been in criminal uh, cases. But the thing about those is they tend to take several months before they come to light. Yeah. And the initial media push of, you know, someone acted a fool in flight, it may be six months or a year before it's like, oh, someone's spending six months in federal prison. 
as a passenger did recently or sentenced recently for grabbing the backside of a flight attendant during a flight one night. Now they'll have six months to think about it behind bars. Yeah. It's just, it's getting out of control. Don't understand why. And, and again, I've mentioned this before. Where did the light switch turn off that people just now are are belligerent? They're ignorant. um, They think they're entitled more. I mean, if uh, there's too many people using COVID as an excuse and the masks and, and all of the restrictions because of COVID, that just doesn't fly. How does that have an effect on ethics? How does that have an effect on decorum? How does that have effect on character and integrity of a person? Why all of a sudden, well, I'll just blame it on COVID because that's why I'm being stupid. Really? I don't think so. I think it was a trend. You were stupid before COVID. You're just showing more stupidity after COVID. So I I just don't buy it. Okay. Your stupidity comments are going to get you in the same boat that I'm in with with my killing the coyote for the coat. (laughs) (laughs) I know. But it's just frustrating that, uh, you know, I'm on an airplane all the time and in the flight crew or the airline or the FAA, you know, we continually have to deal with this. It is a mandate. Wear it. I don't like wearing it, but I wear it. That's just the way it is. And if you don't want to wear it, then either drive yourself, take the bus, take the train, walk. Who cares? But if you're going to get on an airplane and you're going to be in an airport, it's the federal law says you will wear a mask, period. I'd like to point out that the mask mandate applies to any kind of interstate transportation. So even if you're on that bus or train, you have to wear a mask. Your own private vehicle, that's something else. Your own private aircraft. Yeah. Do what you like. But it's just a little a harder. Convenient. Yeah, it's a little harder to enforce on a bus because the bus driver is driving. And they can't walk the aisle and make sure you got your mask on if you're sitting in the back. But again, the thing is, is that uh, this is all about your own per- personal character and integrity. You just do it. I mean, come on, really? It's not that big a burden. And oh, by the way, I don't want to smell your alcohol breath. And if you are sick, which you're not going to admit to, at least you're going to contain whatever it is you have. And if we talk about it, again, the flu virus, which is always with us this time of year, apparently flu has gone down. And a lot of it is, you know, just a side benefit of having uh, people wearing a mask. So there are benefits to it. And if you think at it, think about it that way, it makes it more bearable. So Definitely, definitely. Well, we got an accident to talk about, guys, and try to uh, help the GA community understand what they they need to do, and and uh, you know, and Avemco, our sponsor, is the one of the biggest insurers in the general aviation community, and they're the ones that are probably suffering the most from all this stupidity. <laughs> and I and you know what? I need to remind everybody out there, all our pilots out there, that. All this stupidity, stupidity on the part of some pilots affects our insurance rate because insurance companies just spread the loss amongst everybody that's flying. That's the whole purpose of insurance. That's the, the uh, method that was selected many, many years ago to spread the loss. And insurance companies just administer that loss. And, then, and they make a profit off that administration, no question about it. 
and they make a profit off using the the uh, use of the money uh, until it's paid out on a claim. But all this stupidity is causing unnecessary costs in our insurance. Pilots got to be thinking, and I and uh, I just think back of, of sitting in the FBOs and seeing how many stupid pilots. Uh, of stupid things that happen. You're going you're gonna to get yourself in trouble, John. Uh, yeah, cut me off because <laughs> absolutely. I, I, I've seen too many. And and uh, but uh, but that's yeah. a perfect that's a perfect segue into our segment. Really, was it worth it? The accident that we're going to talk about today, of course, John is a Cessna 172, an older Cessna 172 and H model. Um, that this particular pilot owner has uh, has had in his possession for quite a long time. And uh, the NTSB recently came out with a safety recommendation to the FAA that they want carbon monoxide detectors, not just the little button one that changes color, but a more fancy type carbon monoxide detector installed in every aircraft because they did a study over uh, a 20, 25 year period of airplane crashes that were related to pilots becoming incapacitated due to carbon monoxide poisoning. And, um, and the three of us had the opportunity to uh, not only review the recommendation, the safety recommendation, but uh, look at the accident itself. And I've got real issues as a pilot and as a uh, aircraft owner if you put a required piece of equipment like a carbon monoxide detector in a general aviation airplane, now that becomes a <laughs> part of the uh, routine maintenance that needs to be periodically examined, signed off if you do an annual 100-hour inspection, whatever uh, they're going to require. I don't think I need that. Um, do I have a carbon monoxide detector in the airplane? Absolutely. For those times that, uh, you know, I may get some sort of uh, mechanical malfunction or failure that pumps carbon monoxide into the GA air, in, into the cabin. GA airplanes, um, you know, a lot of them use, utilize uh, the excess heat off of the, um, off the muffler and manifolds to heat the cabin. Others have um, their independent uh, heater unit in the, embedded in the aircraft. Either way, yes, there is always that possibility. But in reading this accident that the board has used and cited in their safety recommendation, there are so many other issues regarding the maintenance and the airworthiness of this airplane. This, I don't one believe, was a very good example to use as the basis for requiring carbon monoxide detectors. And two, had this pilot done all the requisite maintenance, I don't think this recommendation would have, uh, you know, had the basis, i.e. this accident, uh, to be put forth for the requirement of a carbon monoxide detector. So- And here's an so with that. I was going to say, Todd, so with all of that, you've had an, uh, an opportunity to study this a little more. So let's, uh, let's get your input and in, uh, in, your perspective on it. Well, certainly, there, there's, this is a target-rich opportunity to critique the NTSB's approach to this. Now, the recommendation on the surface seems reasonable. And they say, look, you know, there are 31 events from, I think it was 82 to 2000 that we're picking. On page one of the recommendation, 
they focus on this a bit. I'm thinking, okay, this must be an excellent case, a fantastic case, something where, but for the carbon monoxide, this person would be alive and well. But it's like if they're 31 and this is the best one they have or the one they chose on the front page, I call into question their, their judgment because there's so many things about this. The fact that the pilot hasn't gotten a medical in several years, the fact that in the previous six months before the accident, the pilot apparently flew approximately 15 minutes. And the fact that, you know, a visual inspection of the mufflers after the crash showed that apparently anyone could look at this and say, well, gee, this doesn't look like something I'd put in any vehicle of mine, even if I were Jed Clampett going to California in my jalopy. <laughs> and it goes on and on. The person had pre-existing health conditions, potentially incapacitating medications in the system, etc. So NTSB, pick a better job of marketing when it comes to issues like this. Do a you better know, job, rather. John, we, you know, we talk about it. The NTSB found these holes, as they describe it, in, uh, in the muffler and muffler shroud. They were talking about the thinning of the wall thickness and things like that. This was an old airplane. This was a pilot who failed to do proper maintenance, not just, you know, yesterday or in the last year. This is, I mean, when you read the damage to this aircraft and, and the fact that the, uh, the pilot, who was the owner of the airplane, went to a mechanic and the mechanic said, I'm not touching that unless you do a very thorough uh, annual inspection. And the pilot begged out of that and said, I'm not going to do that, said, I'll take it somewhere else. Well, it's obvious he never took it anywhere that he's been operating this airplane in non-compliance with regard to the airworthiness regulations. He has medical issues. There are so many different things about this accident. And the board, you know, decided that this was a great CO related uh, accident when in fact, any one of these other things could have killed him. CO just helped it along. You know, what? one of the things that struck me in this looking at it, all right, so the exhaust system is always part of an annual inspection. In fact, the FAA on their checklist, I pulled it up here just a few minutes ago. It's pretty weak what it says, but it does say exhaust, check for cracks, defects, improper attachment, uh, so on and so on. So it steers you right to it. It's one of the standalone items on the FAA's Part 43 checklist for 100-hour inspections. Uh, but over and above that, the NTSB didn't even recommend anything there. Yeah. And, and, this, and this sort of drives me, it drives me crazy, first off. But it drives me uh, to keep saying to the NTSB, why do you stop your investigations at the hangar door? Time and time and time again, we have these accidents that involve maintenance issues, and they bring it right up, the maintenance issue, right to the hangar, and they stop. And they're doing the aviation community a major disservice because the recommendations don't get into the hang and don't get into the meat. When we look at pilot deficiencies, we have theses on what's going on with the pilots and, and their decision-making and everything else. And we have none of that in the maintenance community. And yet these maintenance involvement and accidents keeps growing and growing and are getting ignored. It's just non-existent. They, yeah, it, made a re they made a recommendation years ago to the FAA about increasing uh, the verbiage for the exhaust inspections. And the FAA did a little tweaking, and that's it, and they haven't done anything since. 
this is an area that probably could use a more detailed explanation than I just read out of their, their documentation on what we're looking for when we're looking at exhaust systems, especially today, what we've seen with the, the mechanic shortage, the turnover of mechanics, all the guys in my age group are all bailing out, they're retiring, and uh, being people are being brought in that don't have the level of experience, and they don't have the mentorship because a lot of guys, like I said, my age are just bailing. They're not sticking around and, and, and training a person for a year or two. They're just saying, I've had enough, I'm getting out. So we have, we have a problem that, that has uh, multiple facets to it. So it's really important for the NTSB to do a more thorough uh, investigation, one that does in-depth analysis of some of these problems that keep reoccurring and, and try to help the community, especially the general aviation community, where there's the, uh, most of the reports are not the, the, uh, the best reports that the NTSB has ever done. And this is a good example of it, but there's many, many others. That I, I wish they would take uh, out of the, out of the, the uh, 150 accidents a month that happen, if they would take one or two of them every month and do an in-depth investigation like they did with the Kobe uh, investigation in California. You know, Bill English did a good job on that when it was a general aviation accident and they had the resources uh, to really dig into it. I wish the NTSB would take one accident or two accidents a month and do that kind of investigation. They might be surprised to find out uh, things different than what they assumed. And the, the outcome of all these investigations that go to the FAA and AOPA and Gamma and all the rest drive millions of dollars worth of, of uh, training and research. And maybe we're training the wrong items. Uh, we don't know what we don't know. So if we don't take a good look every once in a while to see if we're missing something, we're just going to keep doing the same thing and then wondering, well, why doesn't the accident rate change? We see that in Alaska. Alaska, we've been doing the same things for four or five years, trying to drive their accident rate down, and we've gotten virtually no traction yeah. up there. Well, maybe because the data is wrong, and we're training to the data, and, it, and we're never going to get to the causes, real causes of the accidents. Well, the big thing, John, is one, the NTSB will use an excuse that they're overworked, that they have all these accidents, and they can't do in-depth investigations. The problem with that is that Every one of these investigations should be thorough and methodical. I don't care if it's a field investigation. I don't care if it's a limited investigation. They deserve the best quality investigation to ferret out these issues. You don't have to take a, a, you know, a couple accidents a month. Every one of these accidents, it's the investigators putting themselves behind the power curve. Everybody loves to go out and kick tin. Nobody loves to come home, do the analysis, and write the report. That's the problem. And I get tired of hearing these excuses because when myself and others from that older generation of the 80s and 90s were there, that's what we did. That was what is, was expected. And that was the quality of the reports. And to have anybody, which you and I know, somebody already has chimed in on this in this conference we were virtually attending, chiming in saying the the general aviation investigation that the board does today are better than they were 20 years ago. They have better tools, better investigators. <laughs> Wrong in every way, shape or form. And I will definitely take to task that particular person and anybody else because I got hundreds of examples and others 
that have worked at the board and the FAA have examples that they aren't better. They <laughs> have actually degraded. And when you have an accident like this, where there are medical issues, and you have the fact that this is a systemic problem that this pilot owner on this 172 failed, failed to comply with the regulations, not only for himself as a pilot, but failed to be in compliance with the regulations for the maintenance of his aircraft. This carbon monoxide recommendation is a Band-Aid fix. It's just Band-Aid fix. You've got to fix the problem. You got to get to the root cause. And the root cause of this one is, had this pilot heeded the advice of the mechanic and had a thorough annual inspection, I'm sure that the mechanic would have found all these issues with the muffler and would have required, of course, the muffler to be changed. Now, again, it's up to the pilot to shell out the money to do that. And we all know that, and I've seen it a lot on pre-buy inspections, where a pilot, a prospective owner of an airplane will get a five or six page punch list and they will selectively pick what will be fixed. And a lot, instead of just fixing the whole shooting match, well, I'm going to fix this one and I'm going to fix this one. Why? Because it's cheaper. Why? Because I don't want to spend extra money to fix all these other issues. I'll wait. I'll worry about it later. Guess what? It'll kill you if you worry about it later. And well, the F, you know, the FAI is 40, uh, 91, uh, seven and 91, uh, 405 or 407. I forget now, but, uh, they require the pilot to be responsible for his airworthiness and exactly. being responsible. So, you know, I know of a lot of mechanics that have gotten in trouble with the FAA for doing just what you said, letting the pilots get away with it, signing off on, on completion. You know, you can complete a, a, uh, a 100 hour inspection, but you better include the defects on your work order and, uh, and show clearly show that the pilot chose not to fix those because the pilot is responsible for the airworthiness, but mechanics should make sure they protect themselves, especially in, in this day and age with all the litigation uh, that's going on. Boy, if you don't CYA on as a mechanic on the work that you've done on an airplane, just leaving yourself wide open. Yeah. And, and and even and if even if you go to court on an issue like this and you prevail as a maintenance uh, person, a provider, right, the cost to defend, which is normally not covered by insurance, uh, I mean, can be staggering. Lawyers can make you know four hundred to a thousand bucks an hour. In fact, some of them make can make more than that. And when you go to court, boy, you eat up eight hours like it was nothing. It's not an efficient operation. So you could end up spending. Uh, uh, the value of a house defending yourself. So, yeah. And Todd, you brought up a good point off air um, when you, when we were talking about this particular accident and the fact that because of how this airplane impacted the ground and buried itself, there was a post-crash fire. You brought up a good point about whether or not we'd actually be talking about this accident. It's a, it's a, the only lucky thing about this was that the impact was so great. Uh, these mufflers are partially buried, escaped the fire, and they're able to see what reading between the lines was pretty obvious wear and tear on the muffler to the point that you didn't have to be an expert. You didn't have to be a trained mechanic. You could look at it and say, this doesn't look right and do something about it. And also uh, speaking about the patterns of this pilot, it's not just in maintenance. If someone is slipshod as a pirate, uh, a pirate, 
as a pilot in one area. (laughs) Some of these guys are pirates. (laughs) It's likely to spill over into other areas. For example, it stated he'd flown, apparently, at least log, 15 minutes of time in the previous six months. Okay, I'm sure there's a regulation that allows this to happen, but common sense would dictate if you're going to fly, you should fly more frequently than 15 minutes every six months if you want to be a safe pilot. Also said in there that his last medical was uh, about six and a half years before the crash. And we were going back and forth thinking, is there any kind of private pilot license that allows you at age 72 to go five years plus between uh, medicals? Now, didn't mention the biannual flight review, but I have a feeling he didn't cover that either. So again, if you're a pilot or working with a pilot and you see clearly that there is a pattern of behavior and inaction that puts you at high risk, somebody should speak up. Well, that, that's the role of the NTSB. You have to look at noncompliance. I heard somebody, you know, excuse the NTSB that they don't look at violations and that kind of stuff. That's not their, that's not their uh, requisite in their mission. Wrong. You have to look at violation history, noncompliance history. I don't care if it's with an airline, a charter operator, or a pilot, or a mechanic, because that demonstrates a systemic problem. That demonstrates a systemic non-compliance. It demonstrates an attitude that, you know what, to hell with the regulations, I'll do whatever I want to do. And in, this is a perfect example. You got a guy who's out of medical. He's had all of these medical conditions. He's taking drugs, all of which are in non-compliance with the regulations. He's not maintaining his airplane, which is all a non-compliance with the regulation. He's got a mechanical problem that eventually caused him or was a contributing factor in his own demise. He put himself in that position, not the muffler, not the airplane, not the regulations. He put himself in that position. And the board should have held him accountable more than, well, he had a muffler problem and he got CO2 poisoning and he failed to do maintenance. That was just one of many things in this particular accident. So it's just, this accident's just a vehicle. Yeah, I know. that's all it is. It's a vehicle for the NTSB to to push and promote the the uh, carbon monoxide uh, monitor in the airplane. If you look back at the previous accidents, why haven't they cited maintenance in many of those? It's it's been like twenty years since they tried to get the FAA to increase the verbiage in the instru- in the guidance uh, to cover the the uh, exhaust system. And they only did that briefly a few times, and then they just forgot about it. And they went to the uh, monitor in the airplane, a real-time carbon monoxide monitor. So this accident, because there was an indication that he had carbon monoxide in his blood, they used this accident as a vehicle and ignored all the other uh, issues that came up. Um, it's a, it's painful to admit that the NTSB is, is, is not... Uh, not behaving the way they had when when I was there and before. I mean, I have a relationship that goes back dealing with the NTSB to the, to the 70s. You know, it was created in 1967, so I missed a few of those years. But by 70 or 71, I, I was started to get involved with the NTSB and in accidents and other things. And and it just uh, it shakes my head because everything that I knew about the NTSB for for those 40 or so years, uh, it's been thrown out the window recently. Yeah. Well, and I'm, a- I'm anxious to see what their new, uh, their new guidance to their uh, investigators is 
because they took down the old uh, manual that guided the investigations, and they have a new one that they haven't posted yet. But again, at this conference that you and I were a part of or attended, that uh, they, they said that they have a new set of guidance. The old one has been down at least since November. That's when I noticed that it was no longer up. And uh, here we are in February, so that's at least four months uh, that they, it hasn't been up. Why not? If yeah, they have well, one, why isn't it posted? Well, it'll be interesting to see if it's still named Major Investigation Acts Investigation Manual, because that pertains to op, you know running investigations with the team where you have subject matter experts and everything else. Guess what? When you when you do a field investigation as a field investigator, you are all those subject matter experts. You are ATC. You are weather. You are operations. You are maintenance. And if you don't know how to examine a maintenance logbook as a field investigator and determine whether or not this aircraft is in compliance, it's airworthy or anything else, then get out of the business. Because as a field investigator, you have to be a jack of all trades. You don't necessarily have to have an in-depth knowledge if you think or suspect that there is something more on the maintenance records, then get a maintenance uh, person, you know, a subject matter expert involved to really get down to the nitty gritty. But again, we heard an excuse. Well, they're not trained to do that. Yes, they are. That's the whole requisites for the qualifications of a field investigator at the NTSB. And if you don't understand operations, ATC, weather, and those kinds of things, then you can't be an investigator who will conduct a thorough and methodical investigation. It's just ridiculous. I'm tired of hearing these excuses. I'm seeing the end result. You're seeing the end result. We dissect these accidents and we point out all the deficiencies, all the things the board should have examined. If we can figure that out just from reading you know, their information and their factual and looking at the docket, and I can go out there right after an accident and collect stuff that the board investigator should have collected but didn't, then something is terribly wrong with the system. And I heard the chairman and she gave the political line and, and she has all these visions. She really wants to do something. She should have a sit down with folks like me and you and others, a select group. And we'll be, we'll be very happy to show you the deficiencies so that you can take the corrective actions. Because what you're seeing as far as the results from your investigative staff isn't reality. So I, uh, I'm sorry. I just, I, it's just ridiculous. And, and well, we've I'm talked about this. So, uh, you know, um, we, we've hit our, our time, but I, I want to just close out. I'll leave you with the last word, I, like I always do, John. But in closing comments, Todd, anything that you want to contribute? Well, you know, carbon monoxide is a serious issue. We don't want to lose track of that. And, you know, hats off to the NPSB for at least addressing this. But they, as we pointed out, they neglected to address the much bigger issue. And unfortunately, it's an impossible issue. And we're not supposed to say the S word on the show, but I am. You can't regulate stupid out of existence. Yeah. And there's yes. plenty of that going on along in this particular event. So, you know, with that, take it away, John. Oh, it's that's a tough act to follow, right? Because we do see a lot more stupid but I, I want to just go back to the, to the chairman of the NTSB and what she said at this conference that, that just occurred. If, I wish she would listen. If she doesn't want to listen to us because they don't want to listen to you and I because we criticize them too much, get out there and do a listening session with, 
with uh, the insurance companies. Uh, the last few accidents that I've been involved with, the investigators, the ones that work for the insurance company, the full-time employees of the insurance company, boy, they do not hold the NTSB in any sort of high regard. Yeah. Uh, they're, in the, they're in the very bottom when it comes to regard. And, uh, and I know that the manufacturers are aware of that. Uh, other organizations are aware of it. It is, it's just deteriorated to the point where, uh, I mean, Congress may have to step in. Congress may have to step in here and, and yeah. put this train back on the tracks yep. because it's off. But anyway, in my last word, I will say to everybody, uh, thank our sponsors, both PAMA and Avemco Insurance, and also to the pilots that are flying, the responsible pilots that are interested in doing the job properly. Do a nice ex examination of your flight before you leave your house. What am I going? What am I doing? I'm going to fly tomorrow. What's the weather tomorrow? Both where I am en route and where I'm going to land. Right? And then repeat it all the day that you're going to fly before you go out to fly. And when you walk out to your airplane, do a thorough plea flight inspection. It is so important to catch those items uh, before you get in the airplane. And then when you do get out and fly, please fly safely. To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at FlightSafetyDetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at Avemco.com or give them a call at 888 879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives and remember to always fly safe. Take your holiday as seriously as British Airways Holidays takes your holiday. So ditch your desk, set your out-of-office on, and unwind on the white sandy beaches of the Dominican Republic. With an all-inclusive, family-friendly break at the Grand Palladium Palace Resort and Spa. Or luxurious adult-only getaway at the TRS Turquesa Hotel. Book now with a low deposit at ba.com slash palladium. T's and C's apply at All Protected.